Welcome to the Fresh Start Church Podcast, where we exist to influence a nation with revival. Here you'll find preached messages from our pastors. We pray that the spirit of revival is imparted to you as you listen. To watch live, check us out on YouTube or visit our website at freshstartaz.com. And to stay connected with us, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. I want to continue the thought that we began last week on the magnitude of manifestation. The magnitude of manifestation. I want to read our text beginning in the New American Standard. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. As Paul begins to pen an apostolic prayer. He said, and I pray that he would unveil within you the unlimited riches of his glory and favor until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with the divine might and explosive power. That's from the Passion Translation. That's why everybody's confused. Let me jump back over here. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives this name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that you may dwell in his hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. That you may being rooted and grounded in love be able to comprehend all the saint with all the saints. What is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And to know the love of Christ surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Ask or think. Ask all think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen now jump back over to the passage translation verse 17 and then by constantly using your faith by constantly using your faith the life of Christ will be released deep inside of you and the resting place of his love will become the very source and the root of your life. Then you will be empowered to discover what every holy one experiences, the great magnitude. Somebody shout magnitude. The great magnitude of the astonishing love in all its dimensions, uh, how deeply intimate and far-reaching is his love. How enduring and inclusive it is. Endless love beyond measurement that transcends our understanding. This extravagant love pours into you until you are filled to overflowing with the fullness of God. The fullness of God. Never doubt, church. Never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and to accomplish all of this. He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest requests and your most unbelievable dreams and exceed your wildest imaginations. He will outdo them all for his miraculous power constantly energizes you. Now we offer up to God. Oh, I love this, this verse right here. Now we offer up to God all the glorious praise that raises from every church, arises from every church in every generation through Jesus Christ and all that will yet be manifested and all that will yet be manifested and all that will yet be manifested through 
through time and eternity. Amen. Somebody ought to give the Lord praise for his word this morning. Hallelujah. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord. Paul is praying what is called an apostolic prayer. He is praying that the church of Ephesus would catch a revelation of the magnitude of God's power that is in them, his love that is for them, and his presence that is around them. He's praying that they would have uh, an experience with all three expressions, that they may be filled up with all, he says, all the fullness of God which as we understand through the text, it is unlimited in its scope and its impact and its increase. So when you begin to study this prayer and pray this prayer and meditate through this prayer, uh, then, 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 you, then you understand that Paul is praying that we would have insight. And really, remember, Paul is really just praying the heart of God. And Paul is praying out of the depths of the heart of God. For the, for the church at Ephesus, and he's praying that, that they would have insight that there is more than one kind of encounter. There's more than one kind of encounter. He's wanting them to know there's always more. I want you to know, church, there's always more. There's always more. I don't as powerful as God has been in your life and as powerful as God has been in this place. Please never forget, there's always more. And if you find somebody that tells you there is no more, run from them. The text is so powerful, it's giving us an insight that God never taps out. He always goes beyond what he has done. He always excels his last place of excellence that he has manifested. He exceeds his own limits, breaks his own records, and reaches beyond his last stretch. So the most powerful moment, the most powerful experience that you've ever had in your life with God, if you could see him right now, he would be more than that. He doesn't have to go back and redo himself. He never loses anything. He gains everything. He is a God that is ever expanding. As I said, I love so much how the present translation, there's here in, in, verse, in verse 20. It says, never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and accomplish all this. He will achieve infinitely more. Everybody shout more. Than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream. And exceed your wildest imagination. He will outdo all for his miraculous power. Constantly energizes you. Now we offer up to God. All the glorious praise. That rises from every church and every generation. God has had him a praise in church in every generation. There has been a voice that has lifted up the name of Jesus in every generation. There's been an ecclesia in every generation. Oh, y'all are hear me. Every generation, there has to be a remnant of revelation that understands who God is and what God is like, and you can't hold their praise back. You see, does it take all that? Only if you have the revelation of who he is. Don't praise out of obligation. We praise out of revelation. In every generation through Christ Jesus, watch this, and that will yet be manifested. That means there's more to come. 
the great magnitude of manifestation. God is holding nothing back from his church today. I believe we are in a John 3, 24 moment where he says he gives the spirit without measure. That's one great revivalist says is you have as much of God as you want. What have you settled for? I burn with this in my spirit today because I burn to see the magnitude of his manifestation. You see, what does it look like? Well, I can only give you a feeble attempt to describe it, what I see in my spirit. But the magnitude is how you measure earthquakes. It's in the magnitude 9.5 because they tell us that's the largest earthquake that has ever hit the earth. 9.5, Chile, 1960. The largest earthquake that has ever been measured that's hit the earth. 9.5. They say, actually, it's impossible for there to be one bigger. Because for there to be one bigger, there would have to be a fault line that would literally almost circle the planet. Anything over eight magnitude, they call it a mega quake. So since the Lord put that word, that, that, that phrase in my spirit, the magnitude of manifestation, that, I, that I'm, I, I, I'm thinking that the next wave of God, because I've always believed that before he comes for us, he's going to come to us. Before he comes for his bride, he's going to come to his bride. And I'm telling you, there is coming a last day move of God. I prophesy it, I declare it, I open my mouth and say it. I put my faith on it, that there's coming an end time move of God. And what's it going to look like? It's going to look like a mega quake. It's going to be the biggest thing that's ever shaken this planet. I told you last week when, when an earthquake comes, you measure it by its magnitude, but you also measure it by the release of energy and the intensity of the shaking. So I believe that when we experience the magnitude of his manifestation, which is basically in my spirit saying something that God has never done on the earth before. It's not to diminish anything that he has done. Or now, let me say it like this, or diminish everything that he has done. It's just there's more. And religion locks us in to the past experience of revival. We can only go back because in our minds it's hard to comprehend that as great as God has moved into the earth, that there is stuff he still hasn't done yet. I have not seen it. I ear have not heard it. Nor has it entered into the heart of man. The things that he has prepared for those that are passionately pursuing him. I'm trying to build some faith in this place. I'm going on a journey. I'm going somewhere. I need you to walk with me this morning because you see, God's about ready. We're about ready to see it. The greatest release of energy of God's power and over and over and over. Dunamis, there, there's Greek words about power that are energy. Some are in this text that God is a God of energy. He's a God of energy. See, that's why power isn't something that just always oh, power. No, power comes in energy and it moves things. It moves things. 
We're about ready to experience the release of energy out of heaven and the intensity of a shaking. The shaking is going to come. It's going to be, I, I believe, a judgment of the world. I believe this that the great tribulation is going to also, we know it begins with one of the mass, a massive natural earthquake around Israel and Gog and Magog come against it. But I submit to you, before we move into the, before the, the tribulation takes place, there's going to be a spiritual shaking. There's going to be, it is going to be a shaking of judgment upon on the earth calling the lost to God this shaking will also purify the remnant but this massive release of energy is going to bring supernatural activity back upon the earth it's going to be in mass scale it's, there's going to be conversions miracles healings signs and wonders supernatural provision global harvests we're going to see everything that we've ever seen happen, yet with greater intensity. It's going to be a mega quake. Somebody shout mega. But as I mentioned last week, the struggle in much of the church today, and even us here at Fresh Start Church, the struggle is our current mindset limits the ability to match God's present vision of revival. He needs somebody that can see it and believe it. So we talked about a new mindset for a new manifestation. We must develop a new mindset for the magnitude of manifestation. We must begin to think more spiritually and be spiritually minded and less carnal. These are the things we dealt with last week. But I have come to speak into this house today that we need more than a new mindset. We need a new mouth. Somebody lock the doors. I got to preach here in a minute. See, words spoken out of spiritual authority shape attitudes and atmospheres. The atmosphere that is in this room today, the glory and the presence of God is in this room today. It's because the people got together that were hungry for God and released a cry and opened up their mouth and began to praise him and declare his greatness. It created the glory atmosphere. Not every church has an atmosphere like this. As Pastor Kim was exhorting us, some churches have dead, dry atmospheres. But we refuse in this house to worship under a dead, dry atmosphere. And we refuse to preach under a dead, dry atmosphere. So you have to become atmosphere shifters. Luke 6.45. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. Or let me say it like this, for out of the abundance of the mind, the mouth speaks. So we need a new mindset concerning God's vision for future revival, and then we need to match that mindset with our mouth. If you get full of a vision of end-time revival, and you get full of a vision of awakening over our nation, and a global shaking and harvest, then you know what? It's going to come out of your mouth.
You know, in Luke 8, 24, Jesus spoke to the storm. And when he spoke to the storm, he released peace into the chaos. What did he do? He shifted the atmosphere. And if you go on through, if you look at Luke 7, 7, you see Jesus spoke to sickness. He sent his word to heal. And over and over again, you see him speaking to demonic powers and they obeying him. He had authority in his mouth. Are you with me? I want you to go to John chapter 3. Y'all doing all right? John chapter 3 is familiar text, but I got something new out of it I want to share with you. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I said, this is Jesus speaking, do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. He's talking about the spirit of God, the wind of God. It blows and you hear the sound of it and where it is going, watch, so is everyone who was born of the spirit. I never saw that before. He said, the spirit of God is like the wind and the spirit of God has a sound. You don't know where it comes from. You can't see it. But you know it's blowing because it's affecting the atmosphere. And that's powerful enough. But then he goes on and says, so are those that are born again. You see, you're, you're born again, child of God. You have a born-again spirit inside of you. You have to be born again to, to go to heaven. You have to be born again. You have to have a spiritual encounter. And when you have this encounter, you are born again on the inside of you. But I will come to tell you, not only are you, is your spirit born again, but your mouth is born again. And now you can open up your mouth and you have authority in your mouth. So what does that mean? That means he's a born-again believer. Your mouth is the weapon of authority. So, so everyone that is born again, actually everyone born, produces a sound. Right? My grandchildren produce a sound. Decimals. Everyone born of the spirit produces a sound, a spirit, a sound of authority. And that when you speak, things move. See, we have been redeemed and restored to rule. I believe it was Pastor John Kilpatrick that taught us everything in the kingdom is voice activated. Right? So the supernatural responds to a sound that is drawn out of the fountain of faith. It is a great responsibility 
to know that when you speak, it has influence. It's got spiritual weight behind it. You see, we talk about how our praise is a weapon. And the reason our praise is a weapon is because our voice has authority. In Genesis 1, when God got ready to change the atmosphere, he said, let there be light. And there was light. And the light never stopped. It's still moving today. When God got ready to shift the atmosphere, he simply spoke into it what he wanted it to become. I know this is a little much for some of you, but you need to hear what I'm saying because this is very important. Because you see, we need to understand our words carry weight. And as a born-again believer, spirit-filled believer, then we need to understand something. We just can't let anything go out of our mouths. Because I can bring blessing, James said. Well, I can bring cursing. He said it comes out of the same mouth, but it's not supposed to. So as a believer, I understand that I can speak and I can bless. I can speak and I, I, I can release uh, uh, the presence of God, the glory of God, the power of God, the purpose of God, the will of God. I can say the word of God. And because I'm just a believer, I have a sound of authority. But that same mouth can jump over here and be critical and be full of doubt and unbelief and skeptic. I can just speak all kinds of nasty words out of my mouth and it carries the same weight. It's not like you could shut it off. It's in you. He said the born again will produce a sound. Yes. That's why Matthew 12, 37. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Whew. Same mouth. See, words... I'll tell you, this, this always gets you thinking. Words spoken in time don't stay in time. Words spoken in time, they will speak of our character in eternity. Because a man speaks out of the abundance of his heart. If I say it, it's because somewhere it's deep inside of me. How many times have you said something and said, oh, I didn't mean that? Yeah, we did. As painful as it is. Psalms 141, David cried out, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So words have weight. They have influence. They manifest in eternity. I want to go to Ephesians. Would you go to Ephesians with me, please? Ephesians chapter 4. Y'all there yet? I'm not. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Are you ready? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such words as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Let's just stop there. You know what I've always found interesting about this text is you could actually pull verse 30 out and it would make perfect sense. Watch. Let no unwholesome or corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. It's like you could pull that right out. You know what that means? It's there for a reason. Sandwiched between verse 29 and 31 could be one of the most sobering warnings in the New Testament. He's telling us that our words have the capacity to grieve the moving and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I told you, your words got weight. I was meditating upon that and then I realized something. If we don't get our collective mouth right, no Holy Spirit, no revival. You see, the Holy Spirit is the initiator, the energizer, the sustainer of revival. And I have come to exhort you this morning with a warning message. Do not allow yourself to get caught up in carnal chatter, carnal conversation. I come to help you beware of those that speak against revival. Y'all quiet on me right now. I must be pushing on the right thing. You better beware. I'm telling you, if there's somebody that's filling your mind with all kinds of, of negative things and criticisms and demeaning the move of God that is in the earth today and that is in this house, you better run from them because they're speaking with a tongue from hell. This is why we need a new manifestation. You see, a new manifestation, a new level of the moving of God and the Holy Spirit by its very nature draws out the antagonism of carnality. I'm in a good mind to say that again. The new manifestation of the Holy Spirit will draw out the antagonism of carnality. In other words, true revival causes carnal people to become antagonistic. 
Arthur Wallace, the, he, he wrote the great um, a, a revival classic in the day of thy power. He says this. He says, if we find a revival that is not spoken against, we better look again to ensure that it is a revival. And after 25 years of pastoring this church and 38 years of ministry, the only thing or one of the things that I have learned is that the only way to overcome carnality is you have to grow spiritually. Oh, if we could deliver people from carnality. Oh, if we could lay hands on each other and cast carnality out of our lives. But the only way that you can overcome carnality, which means you are immature in your faith, is you must grow in the spirit. Many times revival is spoken against because there is a challenge to carnality. We know our churches are full of carnal believers today. In and out, 20, 25, 30, 30, maybe an hour service. Give me a, give me a, a song set. Don't make me stand too long. Go ahead and I'll take a little communion. Give me some quick announcement and a 20-minute warmed-over message. And then we're all on our way for the week. What's that going to grow? That's going to grow carnality. And then people get all crazy and preachers are like, my people are carnal. We're sure they are. You see, car carnal people, carnal people, which I know none of you are carnal. So this is for the other people. They should have been here today. Carnal people love to hear their carnality is okay. But it's not. And you can get mad and go somewhere else because there's a lot of preachers that stand up and tell you it's okay. But it's not okay. And I kind of agree with Leonard Ravenhill. I don't even know if there's such a thing as save carnal people. He don't think carnal people is even going to heaven. But that's Leonard Ravenhill. And I'm kind of like feeling that pretty good right now. It's not okay, church. It's not okay to be casually committed and loosely connected. It's not okay to slumber around in our spiritual sensibilities. It's not okay. Jesus paid too high a price to redeem us, to be casual in our relationship. So Arthur Wallace talks about the fact that revival is a sign spoken against that's that's a term that you find in luke chapter 2 verse 34 when they took jesus to the temple to be uh brought before the prophet to be dedicated to the lord and god had spoken to simeon the priest and told him before you die you're going to see you're going to see the messiah born you got to see that baby and they brought him into the temple that day and the spirit of the Lord already told him, he's coming and you're going to see him. And after he sees the baby, he prophesies. He prophesies to Joseph and Mary. And what he says is, behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rise of many and for a sign which will be spoken against. Thirty years later, Jesus shows up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. 
grabs the scroll and begins to declare out of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, to recover sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he said, today this is fulfilled. Shut, uh, rolled up the scroll and sat down. He said, this is the year of the Lord. And you know what happened? They all cheered him on. But it was just a matter of a little time before those that heard him make the declaration of who he was to try to kill him. The Bible says that they lost, they lost their wonder of who he was and they became wrathful against him. They were inflamed with wrath, exploding with anger, boiling with agitation. They, they, it really bothered them because he stood up and declared who he was and they, they cheered him on one minute and then the next minute they're speaking against him. They're wanting to take him out of town and throw him off a cliff. But the Bible says that he just walked right through them unharmed. The point I want you to understand that that was a prophetic word over Jesus, that you will be a sign spoken against. It means, it literally means that he was a sign of contradiction. He was a sign of everything. What they thought the Messiah would be, what they wanted him to be, what they wanted him to say, how they wanted him to act. He was a contradiction to what they thought he should be. So they spoke against him and they opened up their mouth against him. But you got to understand Jesus is the personification of revival. And what they did to Jesus, religion was still due to revival today. There'll still be those that speak. His family spoke against him. His hometown spoke against him. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders spoke against him. Roman authorities spoke against him. His own disciples spoke against him. But it didn't matter to Jesus. He was on an assignment and a mission. Just come to tell you, don't lose the wonder. To where you feel like you have a right. You said, Is somebody talking, Pastor? Let me know, I'll get them. I don't know if anybody's talking. I said, This is a warning message. It became a sign spoken against. See, what many people don't understand is that when you speak against a revival or revival, it is literally speaking against the manifestation of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. You said, but there's things that are wrong. There's always things that are wrong. Just because the church is in revival doesn't mean everybody's perfect. It doesn't mean everything will be done right. That's, that's religion. Sandwiched between those two verses that challenge our conversation and our lang- the language of our mouth is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't make him sad. 
Don't make him feel heavy. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we know that it's, it, we're, 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 we've talked about that many times to not quench the spirit. Not to put the fire out, choke the fire out. Do, do, do you understand that throughout the scripture we're, we, we are challenged to make sure that we respect the Holy Spirit? Hebrews 10 talks about insulting the Holy Spirit. Acts 7 talks about resisting the Holy Spirit. Matthew 12, Jesus talked about the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that one of the quickest ways to lose spiritual power and passion is by the grieving and the quenching of the Holy Spirit. Charles Finney, the father of modern-day revivalism, In one of his classics, originally published in 1834, said this. He says, slandering revivals will often be put down. Slandering revivals will often be put down. What he's saying there is that slander will hinder or cause a revival to cease. That's in the context of what he's saying. Let me read this to you. I'll do it quickly. It is to be expected that the enemies of God would revile, misrepresent, and slander revivals. But when the church herself engages in this work, and many of her most influential members are aiding and abetting and culminating and misrepresenting a glorious work of God, it is reasonable that the spirit should be grieved away. It cannot be denied that this has been done to a grievous and dishonoring extent. And then, let me paraphrase, because he goes on and he talks about the fact that they had just had one of the greatest revivals in America. He said, 100,000 souls have come to Christ. You would think that the church and the church leaders would be celebrating and embracing and thanking God for such a move of the Spirit. He goes on to say this. In the midst of this great work, instead of appointing a day of thanksgiving, instead of praising and glorifying God for the greatness of his work, we hear from them the voice of rebuke. For the report that they were given of the, speech, the, the speeches were made, it appeared that the house was filled with complaining. Instead of, uh, of devising measures to forward the work, their attention seemed to be taken up with comparative traveling, e uh, tra tra traveling evils. As much complaining, absolutely appointed committees, they sent forth letters to churches calculating the, ex the, the exact suspicion. Quench the zeal of God's people. Turn them off for giving glory to God for the greatness of his blessing to finding fault. Carping about evil. Lord, help us. And when I heard what was done in the, in the General Assembly, 
When I read the speeches that were in the letters that were sent to the pastors, he says this, my soul was sick and utterly feelings of distress came over my mind and I felt that, that, that God would visit the Presbyterian church because that was the church that the revival was moving through. The Presbyterian church for conduct like this and ever since the glory has departed and revivals have become less and less frequent, less and less powerful. Do you understand? He's talking about that, the, that there was great moves of God and great revivals, but, the, but because of church leadership and those that rose up in it began to speak against it out of their voice. And when they did, it said the glory left. And the glory left, not just the church, but a whole denomination. The glory left. I, I want us to get a picture. I want us to understand this. I know this house is filled full of revivalists. I know that you burn for the glory of God and the power of God and the presence of God. But I have to, I have to push on this just a little bit more because you see, we understand we need Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I crave him. I, I let him know every day that I can't do this without you. I can't live without you. I can't walk without you. I can't preach and teach. I can't do anything without you. Holy Spirit. Spirit, I need you. If he leaves me, I have nothing. You know, in this house, we this morning, we sung about rivers because the Holy Spirit is a river. We sing about rain because Holy Spirit is rain. We sing about wind because Holy Spirit is wind. We sing about oil and fire and new wine because the Holy Spirit is about all of them. But one of the, one of the symbols that we have, maybe if we're not careful, we lose in the church. He is still a dove. The Holy Spirit is a dove. See, we understand this. We understand what that means. He is the symbol. He is the type. He, how dove acts resembles how Holy Spirit acts. So we understand that a dove can be easily startled. A sudden move or a strange sound. A sudden move or a strange sound can cause it to be startled. And then it has been said that a dove will only return two times. It will never return third time to the same location. If every time it goes, it hears the same sound and it startles it. It will not go back. You see, we have to understand God told, Moses, uh, God told Noah that he would not always strive with man forever. The Holy Spirit, you see, church, can be vexed, can be grieved, can be blasphemed. And uh, when it is done in a purposeful way to cause the Holy Spirit to be under control, to call, not give the Holy Spirit liberty, not letting the dove go where the dove wants to go, but keeping it locked up in a cage somewhere. Ah, keeping it locked up in a cage somewhere, then you have to understand that when you let him go, he's not going to come back. And I'm afraid too many churches have kept the Holy Spirit, the dove of God, locked up in a cage. My concern is much of the world, church world today, we have become insensitive to the Holy Spirit's feelings. We have been building houses of personal preference instead of housings of prayer. Houses of personal preference instead of house of prayer. Y'all remember when Jesus went into the temple 
And there was the money changers out in the temple. One of the things that they sold out there were the doves. They had them in cages. They would take them to use for the sacrifice. But when Jesus went through with his whip, because he had a zeal for the house of God, he said, no, this is not what the house of God is supposed to look like. This is not what the house of God is supposed to sound like. And the Bible says he went through and he began to turn tables over. And he began to use his whip and he began to slash the tables. And he began to clean and purify the temple of God. Some believe that one of the things that were purified was the cages of the doves were thrown to the ground. And they were broken open and the dove was loosed. I say it's time to loose the dove again. I say it's time to loose the dove again. It's time to loose the sensitivity Back in the church toward the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a sensitivity of the Holy Spirit, which is how the Holy Spirit feels and we feel what he feels. There's a sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. That's when we feel what he feels, but when we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we're sensitive to his flow. We need to loose the dove. We need to loose the dove. We no longer need to control the dove. We need to loose to the God because when he was loose, supernatural broke out into the temple. Let me see if I can put a caboose on this thing now. I came today with an assignment. I came today with an apostolic father to break the curse and to speak the blessing. I'm going to go back. I felt the Holy Spirit said, some of you are living under the weight of words that you should not be living under. I know I'm kind of jumping around on this, but I felt this so strong when I got to this point. She said, just stop and write this down. Break the curse. Speak the blessing. You see, see, see we, we're not used, and, and used to talking about curses must in the Western church. But there are three common curses. There is the occult curse. And the occult curse is when, when deep, those are deep in witchcraft and Satanism. They attempt to put curses on others through spells and hex, incantations. I believe these are the fiery darts of the wicked one that are launched against the people of God. But we have a shield of faith. And we can raise our shield of faith. And we can overcome every curse that the enemy may throw at us through the occult. The second curse that we're, we're most familiar with is what's called generation curses. The, these are sins and destructive behaviors that, that when parents don't deal with them correctly, then they will be the ones that their children are susceptible to. And we see, we see this going over and over, down from generation to generation to generation. Addictions, perversions, sicknesses, Things that are never dealt with in our lives. Abuse, anger, things that they, they get rooted in the father and the mother. But when they're not dealt with, they continue to move. And not only do they continue, they make the children more susceptible to those, to those curses. But thank God, as a believer, we understand through the cross of Christ, every curse is broken. I've seen it happen more than once in the front of this building. I've seen generational curses stopped. I've seen generational curses die. I want you to know whatever happened to you, it can stop with you. It doesn't have 
to go to your children. Create a mantle of anointing. But the one I felt like I needed to push on just a little deeper this morning was the third most common curse, and that is a word curse. A word curse is a demonic declaration that opens the realm of the spirit to enforce agendas hell over your life. It's an utterance that invokes the supernatural power to inflict harm and to block us from our destiny in God. They're weighty words. Words that go past our ears into our spirit. Into our soul. The weighty words. Words of accusation, words of slander. When they get rooted inside of us, they reap chaos, confusion. It's when the chatter of hell begins to get so loud that it begins to wear you down. You forget. And you get caught up in the narrative of hell because it's telling you who you are and what you will become and what the rest of your life is going to be like. And it's all you can hear. It just speaks those words. Just keep pounding and pounding and pounding. Maybe, maybe, maybe it didn't come directly out of hell. Maybe it come out of the voice of your father. Maybe it come out of the voice of your mother. Many times they come out of voices of people that we deem that we've given authority to in our life. It could be a pastor. It could be an elder. It could be a teacher. It can be many people, but they have aligned themselves with the agenda of heaven. And they're speaking over your life word curses. They can be released knowingly and unknowingly. They can be serious or they can be joking. It doesn't matter what the person releasing them has in their mind. All that matters is what the person receiving them lets it get down into their soul. But here's the deal with the word curse. The only way that it works is it needs someone in the flesh to come into agreement with it. Some call this religious witchcraft. I'm not not talking about Wiccan. I'm not talking about New Age mysticism. I'm not talking about the religion of religion, of witchcraft. You know, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul said witchcraft is a work of the flesh. You don't have to be none of those things to be a witch. Because witches like to speak spells and incantations and hexes. Witches like to come into agreement with hell and manipulate and control. See, sometimes people speak things over you because they want to control you and move you in a certain direction. They're control freaks. They manipulate. They intimidate. See, religious witchcraft... Is when men attempt to use God to get what, or when man attempts to use God to get what he wants God to do. You would be surprised how many witches get in a place of intercession and begin to cry out for what they want over the church, not what God wants. begin to speak incantations and hexes over their pastors because they think their pastors ought to operate in another way, preach another way, sing another way, worship another way. They think everything's all wrong. They come to, they come to intercede the thing out of it. They ain't nothing but a witch. 
aligning their mouth with hell's agenda. But I want you to know something. There's a way to break a word curse. I got some good news. The good news, both blessing and cursings are real forces. The better news is the blessing is greater. I said the blessing is greater. If you can get a mouth of authority to agree and loose blessing and declare blessing and to come into agreement with God's will, purpose, and agenda in the earth, it will happen. I, I, I kept, my, my mind kept going to Nehemiah 13 too. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. I ain't making that up. Nehemiah said, however, however, he said, no matter what's going on, no matter how, curse, how many curses that have been launched against you, however, our God is able to turn your curse into a blessing. What, did not, what, what I didn't realize is, is, is that Nehemiah 13.2, the backstory is found in Numbers 22 through 24, which Pastor Kim spoke about at Revival Weekend, about Balak the king and Balaam the prophet. And that how Balak hired Balaam a prophet to curse the people of God because he was intimidated by their blessing. You'd be half surprised of how many people are intimidated by your blessing. And the only thing they know to do, because they don't have they don't have they don't have the revelation yet of me too, Lord. So when they are intimidated by the blessing that you walk under, they will begin to speak against it. They will begin to say things against it. Even the occult can rise up against it. Generational curses will come knocking back at your door. But I have come to tell you that our God can turn the curse into a blessing. You know what I found out? I found out that Balaam himself, he wasn't a prophet of God. We understand that. But they called him a prophet in Scripture. We know that he, he was known historically to be one of the greatest seers or witches or sorcerers in his time. He wasn't, a, he wasn't a voice for God. Moses was the voice for God. Moses was the greatest prophet of that time, not Balaam. But yet he was famous. He was understood. Everybody knew this guy has skill, dark skills. And if he puts a curse on somebody, that curse is going to stick. So Balak sent his troops to get him 450 miles, offered to pay him ton of money to curse the people of God because he was intimidated and he was threatened by the people of God thinking they were going to overtake his kingdom. So he brought in Balaam, Balaam, the master sorcerer, uh, the master sorcerer, uh, the, the one that, that was a vocal instrument 
of the dark side and the dark realm called him in and three times he, he, he tried to curse Israel but every time it was a blessing I want you to know the enemy can come after you one time two times three times whatever it takes God is able to reverse the curse you better get up on your feet and shout yes You know what I heard this morning? Heard this. The curse is, stay standing, I'm done. Sort of. Nobody leaving. The curse is broken. The blessing is spoken. Did you get that? See, I thought I was going to come and break the curse to speak the blessing, and you said, no. The curse is broken. The blessing is spoken. You just don't realize it yet. Because you don't understand what's been going on around you. You didn't realize it. Words, they're not just words. They're weighty, evil words. He said they're like hell. James did. You know, our Bible says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father ever interceding for you and me. What does that mean? That means he's standing in the gap for us. Do you know what standing in the gap means? It, 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 it means to get in the way. Suffer a man to stand in the gap. I needed somebody to get in the way of what I have for my people and what hell has for my people. I want you to get a picture because the curses are getting ready to come off. Jesus is in the way. When he went to that cross 2,000 years ago, he got in the way. He laid in that tomb for three days and was resurrected, and 50 days later, he ascended into heaven. Or 10 days later, he ascended in. 40 days later, he ascended in. And he's standing in the way. You don't even begin to realize what hell would do to you if he wasn't standing in the way. Jesus is in the way. Thank you for listening in to the Fresh Start Church podcast, where we exist to influence a nation with revival. You can order Pastor Kim's book, Doorkeepers of Revival, at doorkeepersofrevival.com. And you can listen to Fresh Start Revival Worship on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you stream your music. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.